Hi, thanks for joining. Got a question recently, which was a really good one, and it pertains to a passage in 1 John. Uh, here's the question. I was curious about 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, where he, or John, was talking about the last hour and uh, the Antichrist coming. And then he said, uh, this is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but never really belonged to us. So why don't we read the passage, and then we'll go ahead and, 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 and look at it for a minute. Again, this is 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 18 and 19. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared, for uh, from this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. So a couple of things here in this passage. First off, John makes reference to the idea that we know it's the last hour. Now, Peter in, in Acts chapter 2, quoting Joel chapter 2, uh, uh, really introduces us to the fact that we are living in the last days as of that point in history. In other words, right after the resurrection, as the church is born, as they are filled with the Holy Spirit, and, uh, and, and, and the church you know, begins its ministry in that, Peter equates this uh, outpouring of the Holy Spirit uh, as being the starting point of, again, what we call the last days. So when John says the last hour, he's referring to the fact that we're in the last days, but he's also implying the lateness of the hour as well. Uh, we're in the last hour, as he puts it. Well, in his, uh, among other things, this lets me know that even in his own lifetime, and I would, I would, I would accuse Paul of this as well, of believing that they were living in the times that would see the return of Christ, but even the rapture of the church, as Paul would talk about. Different question and subject. But I bring that up because in, the, in, 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 these, in these words, we see what we see typically throughout the New Testament, and that there was this sense of expectancy in the coming of Christ, whether it be the second coming or whether it be the snatching away of the bride of Christ prior to the second coming. Now, I say that to kind of look on the other side of the coin. Satan is also aware that we're living in the last days. He is also hard at work seeking to undermine the work that God is doing. Now, you know, lots of discussion, lots of philosophical discussions, lots of uh, digging into the scripture uh, has been brought to bear on the idea of how much does Satan know? Does he have some redacted view of the New Testament that he knows some things are going on that are, some, that, that are they're pointing us toward the return of Christ? How much does he know? How much does he not know? We don't know the answer to that. But we do know from the New Testament, whether it's passages like this or whether Peter talks about the one, uh, Satan like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, um, Peter himself talking about how we're living in the last days uh, in his writings. And so we know that Satan is aware and is active uh, in his desire to ultimately thwart what God is doing. Uh, ultimately, this resistance to the Lord and this rebellion against the Lord is seen in the person that Satan puts forward. Uh, Satan is also referred to as the dragon. And so when we read passages like, say, Revelation 13 and, and onward uh, toward chapter 19, where Christ returns, uh, we see that the dragon has empowered a person, a man, who we refer to as Antichrist. John refers to this person as Antichrist and says that there is an Antichrist who is coming. Not only is this person coming, but there is a spirit of Antichrist that is, uh, that is pervasive even in our time today, 
and is personified through the various false prophets or antichrists that have gone out into the world. So we distinguish between the one that the scriptures talk about as being the antichrist that is coming, and then we also recognize that there are others who are typical of that antichrist and who are in, uh, sort of of the same spirit as that antichrist, and so John refers to them as antichrists as well. Now, the term Antichrist simply speaks of one who is against Christ, but in terms of our understanding of Antichrist, we see that he is against Christ, and, uh, but, but his means of being against Christ is by putting himself forth as a counterfeit of Christ. Of course, he's not selling himself as a counterfeit. He's selling himself as the legit real deal, but we know he is a counterfeit. As a matter of fact, this, um, this becomes all the more clear when we read about uh, the circumstances and events that take place uh, upon and around Antichrist. For example, again, if you read Revelation 13, you will see that, uh, and I'll commend you to read these passages, by the way. We've covered them many, many times in, 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 various, um, uh, uh, in our various uh, uh, posts, but I'll always encourage you to read and remain familiar with the passages. Um, but in Revelation 13, we see that uh, this one who... Uh, from heaven's, heaven's perspective, he's seen as the beast. Um, the Antichrist, as he's called in passages like First John and elsewhere, and then uh, he's also recognized by the world as their savior. He's the one that ultimately unifies the world in rebellion, ultimately against Christ. But this person is rather impressive from the worldly perspective. He's somebody who uh, uh, some kind of a, a mortal wound is received by him. It's generally um, seen as him having received some kind of a, an assassination attempt, but he comes back from the dead. Now, whether he literally comes back from the dead or whether it appears that he comes back from the dead is, is, is you know, neither here nor there. The, the point is the world sees him as having come back from the dead, and they are so enamored with him they begin to rally around him saying, who is like the beast, you know, and who can make war with him? Well, uh, the beast is empowered by the dragon or Satan. And he also, the beast does, the Antichrist does, he has a partner that draws attention to him. And this partner is known as the false prophet or the second beast in Revelation 13. Uh, later in um, um, between there and, and chapter 19 is also referred to again as a false prophet. So in this dragon, beast, antichrist, second beast, false prophet, you have this sort of demonic trinity in view. Uh, again, a counterfeit of the actual uh, divine triune nature of God. You have a mock resurrection uh, Antichrist is, uh, again, receives a mortal wound from which he uh, rises from the dead. Um, there is a mock Holy Spirit who is drawing attention to the first beast, that the world might worship him. Um, matter of fact, he goes as far as to create an, an image of the beast in the temple area and demands that uh, all the world worship him. Um, you know, uh, in, in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, another place where we learn about the activities of Antichrist, he's referred to here as the son of perdition, a man of sin. Um, but he goes into the temple and declares himself to be God. Well, where is Jesus sitting but at the right hand of the Father and this kind of thing? Well, the Antichrist goes into the temple, declares himself to be God, and demands to be worshipped above all that is called God. Um, so there is clearly this attempt on Satan's part, both directly and 
and through his proxies, the Antichrist and the false prophet, to create this counterfeit version of a savior who has come to bring the world together, uh, ultimately to be unified. Now, of course, this unity, as we've mentioned, and as it says in in Revelation 19, this unified global uh, gathering of, of, of the people behind Antichrist will ultimately seek to stop Christ when he returns. Uh, one of the reasons they're so, or that we see that they're so taken with this Antichrist, who can make war with the beast, is because one day uh, the answer to that question is Jesus will, and they'll put him down in the space of a couple of verses. It'll be, it won't be difficult. Uh, we ought not think that Antichrist is somehow equal to Christ in some way. Uh, there's, there's an infinite difference between even the most powerful of, of the Lord's adversaries, Satan himself. There's an infinite difference in uh, strength, power, authority between Satan and Christ. So anti should not be taken to mean equal in any sense of the word, except for the fact that the Antichrist, the dragon behind him, the false prophet alongside of him, seek to make themselves to be equated with Christ. But again, Jesus talked about this, didn't he, in uh, uh, Matthew 24, when he talked about there will be many Christs, uh, many, or many false Christs, many false prophets will come saying, I'm he and such, and seek to deceive many. Uh, and so this is what Antichrist is about, and this is what the spirit of Antichrist is about. Uh, John in chapter 4 uh, of, of his first letter, 1 John chapter 4, would say to test the spirits to see whether they're of God, because there are many false uh, uh, prophets that have gone out into the world. Uh, any, uh, anyone who confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh uh, has come and has come in the flesh. There was this um, Gnostic belief that uh, the Messiah, if he came, it would certainly not have been in a body of flesh like this. And this was one of the early heresies that the church had to deal with. Um, but, um, the idea that he had already come in the flesh, uh, was an essential feature of John's teaching. The idea that he had, the one whom they had seen with their eyes, heard with their ears, touched with their hands concerning the word of life. Uh, but the spirit of Antichrist is one that seeks to deny these fundamental claims of Christ, his personhood and his deity, his having come in the flesh, his having risen from the dead, incorruptible and such. Um, the idea that death could not hold him down, that he physically rose from the dead bodily, right? Um, in the upper room, the disciples were invited to touch and see and give him food to eat, that they could see that he was a real person standing in front of them, albeit glorified. Uh, and so these are important things that are central features of the Christian faith. We don't have some spiritual view of, of a Christ that came spiritually and and simply fed us information about the divine, but rather the divine inhabited time and space uh, in the incarnation. And so these are elements that are important and central to our faith. But whatever lies and deception ultimately uh, are put forth to cloud this idea of who Jesus is, this is the spirit of Antichrist at work. Well, John here in 1 John chapter 2, coming back to our original text in question, um, John says essentially that here in the last hour, we recognize it's the last hour in part because not only is Antichrist coming, but many Antichrists have gone out into the world. And some of them came up from within their own number. And John says that, you know, if if they had really been of us, in other words, if they were actually believers, they would have remained with us. But the fact that they went out from us is a demonstration of the fact that they were never really of us. What should bring uh, a measure of pause to us, though, is the fact that these departed from the legitimate believers 
And it was once they departed that it was evidenced that they were not originally believers. But for some period of time, they were seen as believers. Matter of fact, Paul warned about this very thing we talked about in our last episode in Acts, where Paul said, I know that after my departure, ravenous wolves will rise up from among you, not sparing the flock. Uh, That should really give us a sense of, of concern and vigilance and alertness about uh, the health of our bodies and to be vigilant about recognizing false teaching or fake disciples and that kind of thing that would seek to devour the flock. They come from within. As we said last time, it's one thing if an enemy comes from outside, you can see him coming and he's got the flag of the enemy and he's firing the guns and all that kind of thing. You can see that and say, okay, those are the bad guys or that's the bad guy. But when they come from within, that's really disconcerting because uh, all of a sudden somebody who maybe you sat alongside with in church or somebody who partnered with you in ministry or somebody who uh, seemed like a, a genuine uh, believer who was just loving Jesus all of a sudden turns out to be a fraud. Uh, and you you wonder, well, how did we not see that? Or, or how do we deal with that now that it's emerged? Well, this is the tactic of Satan. As a matter of fact, Paul would also say in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he would warn, matter of fact, let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 just to read the passage. Um, I want to do all this talking and not go looking at passages, although we will uh, make sure to, to include these in the notes uh, below. But uh, here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, notice in verse 12, uh, Paul has been going on defending his apostleship because there are false teachers that have infiltrated the body there in Corinth and have been basically trying to turn people against Paul. And Paul has been making the point that, look, we wept for you, we were burdened by you, we poured ourselves into you. What would have been the point of this if we didn't love you and this kind of thing? And Paul goes on in verse 12 and says, but what I'm doing, I will continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. For such men are false prophets or false apostles, deceitful workers, Uh, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, disguising themselves, trying to make it seem like they're something that they're not. Uh, And no wonder, verse 14, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. And so Paul makes the point that there are fake apostles, false, uh, deceptive, disguised Uh, as real apostles, but are false apostles. And this should not surprise us. Why? Because their master, Satan, disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it should not surprise us that his ministers, Satan's ministers, should disguise themselves as ministers of righteousness. Now, they are purporting some approach to, 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 to teach a version of righteousness, but it is a misleading version of righteousness, typically having something to do with works as opposed to or in connection with grace and therefore distorting grace, Purport, uh, presenting something that seems to be right, uh, 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 a teaching on righteousness or a theology of righteousness that is actually not. But because they have disguised themselves as apostles, they are very convincing. This again is spirit of Antichrist. After all, what, what do we do if we distort grace, but we block the means of salvation? We present a false Christ or, or a false or misleading misunderstanding of the work of Christ. So again, in 1 John chapter 2, these are elements that help us understand it's the last hour. A, that Antichrist is coming. 
uh, John, again, recognizes here in the last hour. We are in the closing hour, really, time of, of history before the return of Christ. There's an Antichrist coming. False Christs, or those who are of the same spirit as Antichrist, have already gone out into the world. They've even sort of departed from the faith, as it were. They are apostates. They are those who mislead and ultimately cause people to stumble in regard to the truth. Um, this is how we know we're living in the last days. Now, it should be said, by the way, that all of these things have been happening from the time of John and before, from the time of Paul. Uh, even in the earliest uh, days of the church, there were attempts to undermine the truth of the gospel. So, But again, if the last days encapsulate the point where Peter talks about how we're in the last days and the actual return of Christ, then these things will be happening throughout When we read John's words, we're reminded of the importance of being vigilant and being guarded about uh, the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, as Jude would call it, about false apostles, uh, about apostates, about false teaching, about these kinds of things. This is characteristic of the days in which we live. Now, does that mean uh, that Jesus could snatch us away today? Does that mean the second coming is tomorrow? Answer the first question is, well, yeah, Jesus could come get us at any time. Answer the second question is, no, there's a period of time in which Uh, must pass before the second coming happens, but we're living in that time. We're living in the days that are leading up to that. And so therefore, as John would say, as Paul would say, as Peter would say, as Jesus himself said, we should be mindful, watchful, vigilant, resistant to all these false things, the spirit of Antichrist and such. This is the call of the church. This is the call of every believer in the church. Um, And with that, let me just um, make it a point to say that one of the great tragedies of our day is the ill-equipped nature of believers to confront these things uh, for at least a couple of reasons. One is that people don't want to be confrontational about these things. People don't want to rock the boat or be seen as argumentative. Well, Paul said in Romans 16 that you are, in fact, to mark those who cause divisions among you not according to what you've been taught and avoid them. In other words, there is a call at some point to draw a line in the sand and say, look, if you're taking that heretical, false, misleading view, theology, teaching, spirit of Antichrist, then you need to be away from us because the purity of the body of Christ is important. And one of the reasons people, again, don't want to confront that is because they don't want to be seen as confrontational. The other reason why those confrontations don't happen or those kinds of false teachings or false teachers are not called out is because believers don't recognize it as false teaching or false teachers uh, because they are ill-equipped in their understanding of Scripture so that when they hear something that sounds spiritual, even though it may be completely misleading, remember what uh, what, what Paul said about these uh, ministers of Satan, how they, they, they come off as ministers of righteousness. In other words, they are living in, in what appears to be a holy way or in, a, some, uh, in some kind of a holy sort of way, or maybe they're just speaking in such a way as to appear holy, but they're also presenting a gospel that would, uh, that would, um, uh, that would purport to be a version of righteousness, but it is, it is a false gospel. The average believer or the average person, at least, who says they're a Christian, uh, you know, what's this, I forget the statistic nowadays, but there was a point at which, you know, something like 70% of Americans, um, you know, uh, uh, 
you know, would classify themselves as a Christian. Uh, many of that percentage would claim to be Bible-believing Christians. Uh, and I think that, I, I don't know, what, you know how they arrived at that or how those who claim to be Christians arrived at the idea that they were. But by and large, if they are just sort of religious but have no real sense of what the gospel is, then maybe they're not actually believers. Of course, if, if they have a false understanding of the gospel, then they're not believers. And so how do we remedy that? How do we deal with that? I think it becomes important, not just for, for people who teach the Bible, but for every believer to be a student of Scripture, to understand what the Bible teaches in its context, to not just pull verses and sort of build entire theologies out of a verse or two, but to have a, a consistent understanding and, and, and piecing together of what the Word of God is saying, uh, and that we, that we believe it, and that we live it, and that we respond to it, right? This is what a believer does. And not only that, but teach it. Live it out in such a way where it can be seen. Answer the questions when they're asked. Share the gospel cleanly and clearly. Uh, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is simply this, that we are dead in our sin and incapable of saving ourselves. We are hopelessly lost because of our sin. It's not a matter of if I do enough good to outweigh my bad. If I did 10 times as much good as I did bad, that doesn't eliminate the bad. It might mean that I've done more good things than bad things, but if I've done any bad things, if I've sinned at all, I am a sinner and I'm lost. Why? Because I can't remedy that sin, no matter how much I try, try to cover it up with my good works. I am lost. If we don't recognize that, then we don't recognize our need for a Savior. We have to recognize that we're lost apart from Him, separated from God because of our sin. Well, since we can't save ourselves, and since we are in an absolutely catastrophic condition that is unable to be remedied, um, how do you answer that? How do you get by? How do you fix that? Well, you and I don't. It is entirely the work of God. Jesus, God in the flesh, comes into the world in the incarnation, the physical uh, being, Christ, walking the face of the earth, God in the flesh, both God and man, fully God and fully man. Fully man so he could identify us and go to the cross, identify with us and, and, and die on the cross for our, in, our, in our place. Something that we deserve but would not amount to anything. And he who did not deserve it went to the cross and it accomplished everything. As, as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians, he who knew no sin became sin, with our sin in it, that is, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He dies for our sins on the cross, shedding his own blood, innocent lamb, dying for the sin of the world. Buried in the grave, three days later rose again, and he ever lives to make intercession for us. But in that moment, he accomplished all that could be accomplished and all that was needed to be accomplished, that we might be saved. And therefore, all that remains is for us to put our trust in him. It's nothing that we do. It's no... It's no feat of, of faithfulness or, or demonstrating our worth or value, our quality or whatever. There's none of that. It is simply and totally putting our trust in the finished work of Jesus who paid for our sins once and for all. Matter of fact, it was so completely clear that it was once and for all that Jesus essentially said that. When he said it is finished on the cross, the term there in the Greek literally can be translated paid in full. The debt that we owed was paid in full by Jesus himself. And therefore, again, all that remains is to receive that beautiful gift of his forgiveness and grace. That's the gospel. 
There's nothing you and I do to earn it. We can never be worthy of it. We can never make up for it. It is entirely the gift of God in Christ. And that's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, let's turn to it and underline it. If this is a passage you don't have highlighted or underlined in your Bible, let me encourage you to do so. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Let's read it. Where Paul writes these words, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Matter of fact, one other passage to kind of further drive this point home. It's in Galatians chapter 2. Just turn left in another book and you'll be there. Galatians chapter 2, and uh, verses 20 and 21. I have been crucified with Christ. It is therefore no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith uh, in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And I do not nullify or set aside or make useless the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly or for nothing. In other words, if there was anything that I could do, if I could live up to some standard, then there was no point for Jesus to come. They could be accomplished by my own works. But the fact that Jesus came is a demonstration of the truth, the sad reality, the, the, the pride-crushing truth that I can do nothing to save myself. I can do no thing, nothing. It is completely by the grace of God. It's not of works, because if it were, then Jesus never had to come and die. He didn't come to make bad people better, he came to save people who were dead in sin and give them uh, eternal life. But it's entirely because of his finished work. This is the message that the spirit of Antichrist rushes up against and seeks to, uh, to stamp out, to silence, to distort, to discolor, to add to it in order to make it less than it is. Uh, again, if we think of what Paul said, that it's, it's totally by grace. If not then it nullifies the grace of God. If we, if we add something to it, it nullifies or makes useless the grace of God. It makes, sets it aside. No, it's entirely by his grace. And that's why the understanding that and sharing it so straightforwardly and cleanly without adding, well, you need to do, wait, 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 no, no. As if you get that far, you're already starting to distort the, the picture. It is purely by the grace of God. Well, then what about good works? I mean, shouldn't we, you know, try to live like Jesus and all that? Yes, of course we should. But that comes as a result of the grace of God. Being saved, the Holy Spirit continually sanctifying us or making us more like Jesus, that comes as a result of grace. It's a response to grace. It's empowered by grace and by the Holy Spirit's use of it. It's not something we do to earn grace. And if we don't understand that, then we have a false gospel. That's how important that is. And that's why, A, we make such a point to make clear the gospel. But secondly, it's also the reason why it's such a target for Satan and why there are so many attempts to undermine that simple truth. The simple truth that we are dead in sin and incapable of saving ourselves. It is wholly by the grace of God. And if it were not for that grace, we would be utterly lost. There's nothing we can do. And there's nothing we can do to add to it. It is the gift of God lest we boast. And so what is the spirit of Antichrist? What does it mean that those have gone out uh, from among us, uh, these Antichrists that have gone out 
they clearly were not of, uh, in terms of John's own experience with these people, they were clearly not of them because they would have remained with them if they were. The fact that they went out demonstrates that they weren't. And what were they doing? They were sharing a message that was a false gospel, misleading people away or standing in opposition to the gospel. And of course, this is exactly what the Antichrist himself, the individual who will one day be in that place of authority, drawing the world around himself to rebel against Christ, um, this is ultimately what he is doing. He in his very person is trying to put forth, the Antichrist is, a false gospel. So um, hopefully that helps to answer that question, maybe give some explanation to some of the ideas around this. And also, and probably even most importantly, hopefully it helps us to understand the nature of the gospel, the importance of sharing the gospel uh, accurately and not distorting it with anything that would involve our efforts, our works, our merits. Um, we want to make sure that when we share the gospel, we let it be the good news that it is. And that is, again, that it is the free gift of God, all by his grace, through the finished work of Christ, the finished work of Christ. And all that remains is for us to receive. Um, that sounds easy, right? Well, it does sound easy, but we should not uh, confuse the idea of easy or cheap or free or any of these ideas. Grace is free to us, but it was exceptionally, exceedingly costly in terms of the person of Christ. Jesus comes into the world and dies for you and I. Uh, and it wasn't just the shed blood, by the way, as, as horrific as that was. But if you remember, and as Jesus was on the cross, he looked up to the heavens and he looked to his father and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it would, seek for the, for the, it would seem that for the only time in all, of, in all of eternity, that the son could look at the father and for that brief moment, in some way, their fellowship was severed for that moment. Jesus was forsaken. Of course, the, the answer to the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answer to that question is so that you and I would not have to be forsaken by God. Uh, it is the most generous gift imaginable. It goes beyond our imagination. Uh, it demonstrates a love that is beyond anything we can begin to imagine. And the fact that Paul would later on go on to say that nothing could separate us from that love in Christ. Um, it is breathtaking. And it is a beautiful truth. It is the beautiful truth that ought to be protected at all costs. We ought not ever imagine doing anything that would diminish, tarnish, stain, misrepresent, give a, a misguided impression of the gospel. It is the single most important and only life-giving word that there is. And it needs to be shared clearly. And the spirit of Antichrist stands against that. And so we stand against it. So that being said, let's ask the Lord, let's ask the Holy Spirit to give us the power, the wisdom, the equipping to do that very thing. That we, like John, would recognize these false Christs, these false teachers, these false prophets, these false gospels. And that we would not sit idly by while these things go out into the world and, and these people go out into the world, and these messages go out into the world, but rather for our part and our little sphere of influence that we might have, let us stand for the truth of the gospel because it is the truth. Father, we thank you and we praise you and bless you. You truly are loving beyond our ability to even 
scratch the surface of comprehending. Help us to take time as believers to consider as we read your word, as we consider what Jesus accomplished. Uh, help us not to simply see it as a, a, a clinical approach to understanding um, some elements so, and all of that. Help us to understand these things fully and help us in understanding it to find ourselves absolutely overcome, overwhelmed at the thought that you would love us so much that you would give your only begotten Son, that if we would believe in him, we'd not perish but have everlasting life. Could a more beautiful message have ever been uttered? And so, Father, help us to know the gospel, to know your word as it pertains to explaining the gospel, and help us then to explain it clearly, purely, and allow it to be the beautiful, life-giving message that it is, and not to distort it, not to change it, not to diminish it, but to love and appreciate it and share it faithfully. Father, we know that we live in the last days, even as John said, Paul said, Peter said, Jesus said, everybody uh, that we read in the New Testament in one way or another begins to kind of urge us toward the knowledge that we'll see one day. And Father, some of these passages even give a lot of specificity to what the world's going to look like as we get close to that. And so help us to be sensitive to what the Word says and to consider the world we're living in in relation to that, to help us get a sense of how near we are uh, to seeing you and to Jesus coming to establish that kingdom. Father, none of us is guaranteed another breath, and so we certainly want to consider the fact that today might be the day we see you just by some other means. But certainly one day soon Jesus will come and snatch away his bride, and our time here on earth will be done. So we pray that you'd help us to take stock of the days in which we're living, to ask you to graciously put us in the place and the situations and circumstances that you can use us most effectively. Help us to humble ourselves before you and not rely on our own understandings and our own schemings and plottings and such, but rather to trust the Holy Spirit's leading, to be students of your word, that he might recall those things from your word into our minds that we've read, that we've studied, that we've maybe prayed into our hearts. And we just pray that you'd use us, each one of us, wherever we are. Help us not to worry about whether... Uh, you know, what our circumstances might look like, but rather, as we're in them, to seek your desire and, and be open to your using of us. Thank you, Father. We do thank you for the gospel. And we thank you that we're saved by it. We thank you we stand on it. And we thank you that because of it, one day we'll see you face to face, unafraid and unashamed. We thank you, Father, and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have any thoughts or questions, please, as always, feel free to share them. Uh, obviously, from time to time, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll take a question and, and answer it uh, in, in an episode. But um, you can share your thoughts, comments, and such in the comments section below. If you want to go to my website, it's parsonspad.com, and you can also watch these videos there, or you can subscribe to the audio version as well and, uh, and such. If you want to learn about our church, we invite you to check out calvarychapelfranklin.com. If you're in the area, come out and pay us a visit on a Sunday morning. We'd love to have you come worship alongside of us. And, um, uh, and of course, we invite you to join our midweek study online as well as we post on Wednesday nights here on our YouTube channel at 7 o'clock. So thanks again for watching, for listening, for joining in. And may the Lord bless and keep you, make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you, and give you peace forever. In Jesus' name, amen.